Section 19 of On War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz. Translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book 4. Chapter 1. Introductory. Having in the foregoing book examined the subjects which may be regarded as the efficient elements of war, we shall now turn our attention to the combat as the real activity in warfare, which, by its physical and moral effects, embraces sometimes more simply, sometimes in a more complex manner, the object of the whole campaign. In this activity, and in its effects, these elements must therefore appear. The formation of the combat is tactical in its nature. We only glance at it here in a general way in order to get acquainted with its aspect as a whole. In practice, the minor or more immediate objects give every combat a characteristic form. These objects we shall not discuss until hereafter, but these peculiarities are in comparison to the general characteristics of a combat mostly only insignificant, so that most combats are very like one another, and therefore, in order to avoid repeating that which is general at every stage, we are compelled to look into it here before taking up the subject of its more special applications. In the first place, therefore, we shall give in the next chapter, in a few words, the characteristics of the modern battle in its tactical course, because that lies at the foundation of our conception of what the battle really is. Chapter 2. Character of the Modern Battle According to the notion we have formed of tactics and strategies, it follows, as a matter of course, that if the nature of the former is changed, that change must have an influence on the latter. If tactical facts in one case are entirely different from those in another, then the strategic must be also if they are to continue consistent and reasonable. It is therefore important to characterize a general action in its modern form before we advance with the study of its employment in strategy. What do we do now usually in a great battle? We place ourselves quietly in great masses arranged contiguous to and behind one another. We deploy relatively only a small portion of the whole, and let it ring itself out in a fire combat which lasts for several hours, only interrupted now and again, and removed hither and thither, by separate small shocks from charges with the bayonet and cavalry attacks. When this line has gradually exhausted part of its warlike ardour in this manner, and there remains nothing more than the cinders, it is withdrawn and replaced by another. In this manner, the battle on a modified principle burns slowly away like wet powder, and if the veil of night commands it to stop, because neither party can any longer see, and neither chooses to run the risk of blind chance, then an account is taken by each side respectively of the masses remaining, which can be called still effective, that is, which are not yet quite collapsed like extinct volcanoes. Account is taken of the ground gained or lost, and of how stands the security of the rear. These results, with the special impressions as to bravery and cowardice, ability and stupidity, which are thought to have been observed in ourselves and in the enemy, are collected into one single total impression, out of which there springs the resolution to quit the field, or to renew the combat on the morrow. This description, which is not intended as a finished picture of a modern battle, but only to give its general tone, suits for the offensive and defensive, and the special traits which are given by the object proposed, the country, and such and such, may be introduced to it without materially altering the conception. But modern battles are not so by accident. They are so because the parties find themselves 
nearly on a level as regards military organization and the knowledge of the art of war and because the warlike element inflamed by the general national interests has broken through the artificial limits and now flows in its natural channel under these two conditions battles will always preserve this character this general idea of the modern battle will be useful to us in sequel in more places than one if we want to estimate the value of the particular coefficients of strength country and such and such it is only for general great and decisive combats and such as come near to them that this description stands good inferior ones have changed their character also in the same direction but less than great ones the proof of this belongs to tactics we shall however have an opportunity hereafter of making this subject plainer by giving a few particulars chapter three the combat in general the combat is the real warlike activity everything else is only its auxiliary let us therefore take an attentive look at its nature combat means fighting and in this the destruction or conquest of the enemy is the object and the enemy in the particular combat is the armed force which stands opposed to us this is the simple idea we shall return to it but before we can do that we must insert a series of others if we suppose the state and its military force as a unit then the most natural idea is to imagine the war also as one great combat and in the simple relations of savage nations it is also not much otherwise but our wars are made up of a number of great and small simultaneous or consecutive combats and this severance of activity into so many separate actions is owing to the great multiplicity of the relations out of which war arises with us in point of fact the ultimate object of our wars the political one is not always quite a simple one and even were it so still the action is bound up with such a number of conditions and considerations to be taken into account that the object can no longer be attained by one single great act but only through a number of greater or smaller acts which are bound up into a whole each of these separate acts is therefore a part of a whole and has consequently a special object by which it is bound to this whole we have already said that every strategic act can be referred to the idea of a combat because it is an employment of the military force and at the root of that there always lies the idea of fighting we may therefore reduce every military activity in the province of strategy to the unit of the single combats and occupy ourselves with the object of these only we shall get acquainted with these special objects by degrees as we come to speak of the causes which produce them here let us content ourselves with saying that every combat great or small has its own peculiar object in subordination to the main object if this is the case then the destruction and conquest of the enemy is only to be regarded as the means of gaining this object as it unquestionably is but this result is true only in its form and important only on account of the connection which the ideas have between themselves and we have only sorted out to get rid of it at once what is overcoming the enemy invariably the destruction of his military force whether it be by death or wounds or any means whether it be completely or only to such a degree that he can no longer continue the contest therefore as long as we set aside all special objects of combats we may look upon the complete or partial destruction of the enemy as the only object for all combats 
now we maintain that in the majority of cases and especially in great battles the special object by which the battle is individualized and bound up with the great whole is only a weak modification of that general object or an ancillary object bound up with it important enough to individualize the battle but always insignificant in comparison with the general object so that if that ancillary object alone should be obtained only an unimportant part of the purpose of the combat is fulfilled if this assertion is correct then we see that the idea according to which the destruction of the enemy's force is only the means and something else always the object can only be true in form but that it would lead to false conclusions if we did not recollect that this destruction of the enemy's force is comprised in that object and that this object is only a weak modification of it forgetfulness of this led to completely false views before the wars of the last period and created tendencies as well as fragments of systems in which theory thought it raised itself so much the more above handcraft the less it supposed itself to stand in need of the use of the real instrument that is the destruction of the enemy's force certainly such a system could not have arisen unless supported by other false suppositions and unless in place of the destruction of the enemy other things had been substituted to which an efficacy was ascribed which did not rightly belong to them we shall attack these falsehoods whenever occasion requires but we could not treat of the combat without claiming for it the real importance and value which belonged to it and giving warning against the errors to which merely formal truth might lead but now how shall we manage to show that in most cases and in those of most importance the destruction of the enemy's army is the chief thing how shall we manage to combat the extremely subtle idea which supposes it possible through the use of a special artificial form to effect by a small direct destruction of the enemy's forces a much greater destruction indirectly or by means of small but extremely well-directed blows to produce such paralysis in the enemy's forces such command over the enemy's will that this mode of proceeding is to be viewed as a great shortening of the road undoubtedly a victory at one point may be of more value than at another undoubtedly there is a scientific arrangement of battles amongst themselves even in strategy which is in fact nothing but the art of thus arranging them to deny that is not our intention but we assert that the direct destruction of the enemy's forces is everywhere predominant we contend here for the overruling importance of this destructive principle and nothing else we must however call to mind that we are now engaged with strategy not tactics therefore we do not speak of the means which the former have of destroying at a small expense a large body of the enemy's forces but under direct destruction we understand the tactical results and that therefore our assertion is that only great tactical results can lead to great strategical ones or as we have already once before more distinctly expressed it the tactical successes are of paramount importance in the conduct of war the proof of this assertion seems to us simple enough it lies in the time which every complicated artificial combination requires the question whether a simple attack or one or more carefully prepared that is more artificial will produce greater effects may undoubtedly be decided in favour of the latter as long as the enemy is assumed to remain quite passive but every carefully combined attack requires time for its preparation and if a counter-stroke by the enemy intervenes our whole design may be upset now if the enemy should decide upon some simple attack 
which can be executed in a shorter time, then he gains the initiative and destroys the effect of the great plan. Therefore, together with the expediency of a complicated attack, we must consider all the dangers which we run during its preparation, and should only adopt it if there is no reason to fear that the enemy will disconcert our scheme. Whenever this is the case, we must ourselves choose the simpler, that is, quicker, way, and lower our views in this sense as far as the character, the relations of the enemy, and other circumstances may render necessary. If we quit the weak impressions of abstract ideas and descend to the region of practical life, then it is evident that a bold, courageous, resolute enemy will not let us have time for wide-reaching, skilful combinations, and it is just against such a one we should require skill the most. By this it appears to us that the advantage of simple and direct results over those that are complicated is conclusively shown. Our opinion is not on that account that the simple blow is the best, but that we must not lift the arm too far for the time given to strike, and that this condition will always lead more to direct conflict the more warlike our opponent is. Therefore, far from making it our aim to gain upon the enemy by complicated plans, we must rather seek to be beforehand with him by greater simplicity in our designs. If we seek for the lowest foundation stones of these converse propositions, we find that in the one it is ability, in the other courage. Now there is something very attractive in the notion that a moderate degree of courage, joined to great ability, will produce greater effects than a moderate ability with great courage. But unless we suppose these elements in a disproportionate relation, not logical, we have no right to assign to ability this advantage over courage in a field which is called danger, and which must be regarded as the true domain of courage. After this abstract view, we shall add only that experience, very far from leading to a different conclusion, is rather the sole cause which has impelled us in this direction, and given rise to such reflections. Whoever reads history with a mind free from prejudice cannot fail to arrive at a conclusion that of all military virtues, energy in the conduct of operations has always contributed the most to the glory and success of arms. How we make good our principle of regarding the destruction of the enemy's force as the principal object, not only in the war as a whole, but also in each separate combat, and how that principle suits all the forms and conditions necessarily demanded by the relations out of which war springs, the sequel will show. For the present all we desire is to uphold its general importance, and with this result we return again to the combat. Chapter 4. The Combat in General. Continuation. In the last chapter we showed the destruction of the enemy as the true object of the combat, and we have sought to prove by a special consideration of the point that this is true in the majority of cases and in respect to the most important battles, because the destruction of the enemy's army is always the preponderating object in war. The other objects which may be mixed up with this destruction of the enemy's force and may have more or less influence we shall describe generally in the next chapter and become better acquainted with by degrees afterwards. Here we divest the combat of them entirely, and look upon the destruction of the enemy as the complete and sufficient object of any combat. What are we now to understand by the destruction of the enemy's army? A diminution of it relatively greater than that of our own side. If we have a great superiority in numbers over the enemy, 
then naturally the same absolute amount of loss on both sides is for us a smaller one than for him, and consequently may be regarded in itself as an advantage. As we are here considering the combat as divested from all other objects, we must also exclude from our consideration the case in which the combat is used only indirectly for a greater destruction of the enemy's force. Consequently also, only that direct gain which has been made in the mutual process of destruction is to be regarded as the object, for this is an absolute gain which runs through the whole campaign, and at the end of it will always appear as pure profit. But every other kind of victory over our opponent will either have its motive in other objects, which we have completely excluded here, or it will only yield a temporary relative advantage. An example will make this plain. If by a skilful disposition we have reduced our opponent to such a dilemma that he cannot continue the combat without danger, and after some resistance he retires, then we may say that we have conquered him at that point. But if in this victory we have expended just as many forces as the enemy, then in closing the account of the campaign there is no gain remaining from this victory, if such a result can be called a victory. Therefore the overcoming the enemy, that is, placing him in such a position that he must give up the fight, counts for nothing in itself, and for that reason cannot come under the definition of object. There remains, therefore, as we have said, nothing over except the direct gain which we have made in the process of destruction. But to this belong not only the losses which have taken place in the course of the combat, but also those which, after the withdrawal of the conquered part, take place as direct consequences of the same. Now it is known by experience that the losses in physical forces in the course of a battle seldom present a great difference between victor and vanquished respectively, often none at all, sometimes even one bearing an inverse relation to the result, and that the most decisive losses on the side of the vanquished only commence with the retreat, that is, those which the conqueror does not share with him. The weak remains of battalions already in disorder are cut down by cavalry. Exhausted men strew the ground, disabled guns and broken caissons are abandoned. Others in the bad state of the roads cannot be removed quickly enough and are captured by the enemy's troops. During the night numbers lose their way and fall defenceless into the enemy's hands. And thus the victory mostly gains bodily substance after it is already decided. Here would be a paradox if it did not solve itself in the following manner. The loss in physical force is not the only one which the two sides suffer in the course of the combat. The moral forces are also shaken, broken, and go to ruin. It is not only the loss in men, horses, and guns, but in order, courage, confidence, cohesion, and plan, which come into consideration when it is a question whether the fight can still be continued or not. It is principally the moral forces which decide here, and in all cases in which the conqueror has lost as heavily as the conquered, it is these alone. The comparative relation of the physical losses is difficult to estimate in a battle, but not so the relation of the moral ones. Two things principally make it known. The first is the loss of the ground on which the fight has taken place, the other the superiority of the enemies. The more our reserves have diminished as compared with those of the enemy, the more force we have used to maintain the equilibrium. 
in this at once an evident proof of the moral superiority of the enemy is given which seldom fails to stir up in the soul of the commander a certain bitterness of feeling and a sort of contempt for his own troops but the principal thing is that men who have been engaged for a long continuance of time are more or less like burnt-out cinders their ammunition is consumed they have melted away to a certain extent physical and moral energies are exhausted perhaps their courage is broken as well such a force irrespective of the diminution in its number if viewed as an organic whole is very different from what it was before the combat and thus it is that the loss of moral force may be measured by the reserves which have been used as if it were on a foot rule lost ground and want of fresh reserves are therefore usually the principal causes which determine a retreat but at the same time we by no means exclude or desire to throw into the shade other reasons which may lie in the interdependence of the parts of the army in the general plan and such every combat is therefore the bloody and destructive measuring of the strength of forces physical and moral whoever at the close has the greatest amount of both left is the conqueror in the combat the loss of moral force is the chief cause of the decision after that is given this loss continues to increase until it reaches its culminating point at the close of the whole act this then is the opportunity the victor should seize to reap his harvest by the utmost possible restrictions of his enemy's forces the real object of engaging in the combat on the beaten side the loss of all order and control often makes the prolongation of resistance by individual units by the further punishment they are certain to suffer more injurious than useful to the whole the spirit of the mass is broken the original excitement about losing or winning through which danger was forgotten is spent and to the majority danger now appears no longer an appeal to their courage but rather the endurance of a cruel punishment thus the instrument in the first moment of the enemy's victory is weakened and blunted and therefore no longer fit to repay danger by danger this period however passes the moral forces of the conquered will recover by degrees order will be restored courage will revive and in the majority of cases there remains only a small part of the superiority obtained often none at all in some cases even although rarely the spirit of revenge and intensified hostility may bring about an opposite result on the other hand whatever is gained in killed wounded prisoners and guns captured can never disappear from the account the losses in a battle consist more in killed and wounded those after the battle more in artillery taken and prisoners the first the conqueror shares with the conquered more or less but the second not and for that reason they usually only take place on one side of the conflict at least they are considerably in excess on one side artillery and prisoners are therefore at all times regarded as the true trophies of victory as well as its measure because through these things its extent is declared beyond a doubt even the degree of moral superiority may be better judged by them than by any other relation especially if the number of killed and wounded is compared therewith and here arises a new power increasing the moral effects we have said that the moral forces beaten to the ground in the battle and in the immediately succeeding movements recover themselves gradually 
and often bear no traces of injury. This is the case with small divisions of the whole, less frequently with large divisions. It may, however, also be the case with the main army, but seldom or never in the state or government to which the army belongs. These estimate the situation more impartially, and from a more elevated point of view, and recognise in the number of trophies taken by the enemy, and their relation to the number of killed and wounded, only too easily and well, the measure of their own weakness and inefficiency. In point of fact, the lost balance of moral power must not be treated lightly, because it has no absolute value, and because it does not of necessity appear in all cases in the amounts of the results at the final close. It may become of such excessive weight as to bring down everything with an irresistible force. On that account, it may often become a great aim of the operation of which we shall speak elsewhere. Here we have still to examine some of its fundamental relations. The moral effect of a victory increases not merely in proportion to the extent of the forces engaged, but in a progressive ratio. That is to say, not only in extent, but also in its intensity. In a beaten detachment, order is easily restored. As a single frozen limb is easily revived by the rest of the body, so the courage of a defeated detachment is easily raised again by the courage of the rest of the army as soon as it rejoins it. If, therefore, the effects of a small victory are not completely done away with, still they are partly lost to the enemy. This is not the case if the army itself sustains a great defeat, then one with the other fall together. A great fire attains quite a different heat from several small ones. Another relation which determines the moral value of a victory is the numerical relation of the forces which have been in conflict with each other. To beat many with few is not only a double success, but shows also a greater, especially a more general, superiority which the conquered must always be fearful of encountering again. At the same time, this influence is in reality hardly observable in such a case. In the moment of real action, the notions of the actual strength of the enemy are generally so uncertain, the estimate of our own commonly so incorrect, that the party superior in numbers either does not admit the disproportion, or is very far from admitting the full truth owing to which he evades almost entirely the moral disadvantages which would spring from it. It is only hereafter in history that the truth, long suppressed through ignorance, vanity, or a wise discretion, makes its appearance, and then it certainly casts a luster on the army and its leader. But it can then do nothing more, by its moral influence, for events long past. If prisoners and captured guns are those things by which the victory principally gains substance, its true crystallizations, then the plan of the battle should have those things specially in view. The destruction of the enemy by death and wounds appears here merely as a means to an end. How far this may influence the dispositions in battle is not an affair of strategy, but the decision to fight the battle is in intimate connection with it, as is shown by the direction given to our forces and their general grouping, whether we threaten the enemy's flank or rear, or he threatens ours. On this point, the number of prisoners and captured guns depends very much, and it is a point which, in many cases, tactics alone cannot satisfy, particularly if the strategic relations 
are too much in opposition to it. The risk of having to fight on two sides, and the still more dangerous position of having no line of retreat left open, paralyze the movements and the power of resistance. Further, in case of defeat, they increase the loss, often raising it to its extreme point, that is, to destruction. Therefore, the rear being endangered makes defeat more probable, and at the same time, more decisive. From this arises, in the whole conduct of the war, especially in great and small combats, a perfect instinct to secure our own line of retreat and to seize that of the enemy. This follows from the conception of victory, which, as we have seen, is something beyond mere slaughter. In this effort we see, therefore, the first immediate purpose in the combat, and one which is quite universal. No combat is imaginable in which this effort, either in its double or single form, does not go hand in hand with the plain and simple stroke of force. Even the smallest troop will not throw itself upon its enemy without thinking of its line of retreat, and, in most cases, it will have an eye upon that of the enemy also. We should have to digress to show how often this instinct is prevented from going the direct road, how often it must yield to the difficulties arising from more important considerations. We shall, therefore, rest contented with affirming it to be a general natural law of the combat. It is, therefore, active, presses everywhere with its natural weight, and so becomes the pivot on which almost all tactical and strategic manoeuvres turn. If we now take a look at the conception of victory as a whole, we find in it three elements. 1. The greater loss of the enemy in physical power. 2. In moral power. 3. His open avowal of this by the relinquishment of his intentions. The returns made up on each side of losses in killed and wounded are never exact, seldom truthful, and in most cases full of intentional misrepresentations. Even the statement of the number of trophies is seldom to be quite depended on. Consequently, when it is not considerable, it may also cast a doubt even on the reality of the victory. Of the loss in moral forces there is no reliable measure except in the trophies. Therefore, in many cases, the giving up the contest is the only real evidence of the victory. It is, therefore, to be regarded as a confession of inferiority, as the lowering of the flag, by which in this particular instance right and superiority are conceded to the enemy, and this degree of humiliation and disgrace, which, however, must be distinguished from all other moral consequences of the loss of equilibrium, is an essential part of the victory. It is this part alone which acts upon the public opinion outside the army, upon the people and the government in both belligerent states, and upon all others in any way concerned. But renouncement of the general object is not quite identical with quitting the field of battle, even when the battle has been very obstinate and long kept up. No one says of advanced posts, when they retire after an obstinate combat, that they have given up their object. Even in combats aimed at the destruction of the enemy's army, the retreat from the battlefield is not always to be regarded as a relinquishment of this aim, as, for instance, in retreats planned beforehand, in which the ground is disputed foot by foot. All this belongs to that part of our subject where we shall speak of the separate object of the combat. Here we only wish to draw attention to the fact that in most cases 
the giving up of the object is very difficult to distinguish from the retirement from the battlefield, and that the impression produced by the latter, both in and out of the army, is not to be treated lightly. For generals and armies whose reputation is not made, this is, in itself, one of the difficulties in many operations, justified by circumstances when a succession of combats, each ending in retreat, may appear as a succession of defeats, without being so in reality, and when that appearance may exercise a very depressing influence. It is impossible for the retreating general, by making known his real intentions, to prevent the moral effect spreading to the public and his troops, for to do that with effect he must disclose his plans completely, which, of course, would run counter to his principal interests to too great a degree. In order to draw attention to the special importance of this conception of victory, we shall only refer to the Battle of Saw, the trophies from which were not important, a few thousand prisoners and twenty guns, and where Frederick proclaimed his victory by remaining for five days after on the field of battle, although his retreat into Silesia had been previously determined on, and was a measure natural to his whole situation. According to his own account, he thought he would hasten a peace by the moral effect of his victory. Now, although a couple of other successes were likewise required, namely the Battle of Katholisch Herrensdorf in Lusitania, and the Battle of Kesseldorf before this peace took place, still we cannot say that the moral effect of the Battle of Saw was nil. If it is chiefly the moral force which is shaken by defeat, and if the number of trophies reaped up by the enemy mounts up to an unusual height, then the lost combat becomes a rout. But this is not the necessary consequence of every victory. A rout only sets in when the moral force of the defeated is very severely shaken. Then there often ensues a complete incapability of further resistance, and the whole action consists of giving way, that is, of flight. Jena and Belle Alliance were routs, but not so Borodino. Although without pedantry we can give here no single line of separation, because the difference between the things is one of degrees, yet still the retention of the conception is essential as a central point to give clearness to our theoretical ideas, and it is a want in our terminology that for a victory over the enemy tantamount to a rout, and a conquest of the enemy only tantamount to a simple victory, there is only one and the same word to use. Chapter 5. On the Signification of the Combat Having in the preceding chapter examined the combat in its absolute form, as the miniature picture of the whole war, we now turn to the relations which it bears to the other parts of the great whole. First we inquire, what is more precisely the signification of a combat? As war is nothing else but a mutual process of destruction, then the most natural answer in conception, and perhaps also in reality, appears to be that all the powers of each party unite in one great volume, and all results in one great shock of these masses. There is certainly much truth in this idea, and it seems to be very advisable that we should adhere to it, and should on that account look upon small combats at first only as necessary loss, like the shavings from a carpenter's plane. Still, however, the thing cannot be settled so easily. 
that a multiplication of combat should arise from a fractioning of forces is a matter of course, and the more immediate objects of separate combats will therefore come before us in the subject of a fractioning of forces. But these objects, and together with them, the whole mass of combats may in a general way be brought under certain classes, and the knowledge of these classes will contribute to make our observations more intelligible. Destruction of the enemy's military forces is in reality the object of all combats, but other objects may be joined thereto, and these other objects may be at the same time predominant. We must, therefore, draw a distinction between those in which the destruction of the enemy's forces is the principal object, and those in which it is more the means. The destruction of the enemy's force, the possession of a place or the possession of some object, may be the general motive for a combat, and it may be either one of these alone or several together, in which case, however, usually one is the principal motive. Now, the two principal forms of war, the offensive and defensive, of which we shall shortly speak, do not modify the first of these motives, but they certainly do modify the other two, and therefore, if we arrange them in a scheme, they would appear thus. Offensive, 1. Destruction of the enemy's force. 2. Conquest of a place. 3. Conquest of some object. Defensive, 1. Destruction of enemy's force. 2. Defense of a place. 3. Defense of some object. These motives, however, do not seem to embrace completely the whole of the subject, if we recollect that there are reconnaissances and demonstrations in which plainly none of these three points is the object of the combat. In reality we must, therefore, on this account be allowed a fourth class, strictly speaking in reconnaissances in which we wish the enemy to show himself, in alarms by which we wish to wear him out, in demonstrations by which we wish to prevent his leaving some point, or to draw him off to another, the objects are all such as can only be attained indirectly, and under the pretext of one of the three objects specified in the table, usually of the second. For the enemy, whose aim it is to reconnoitre, must draw up his force as if he really intended to attack and defeat us, or drive us off, and such and such, but this pretended object is not the real one, and our present question is only as to the latter. Therefore we must, to the above three objects of the offensive, add a fourth, which is to lead the enemy to make a false conclusion, that offensive means are conceivable in connection with this object, lies in the nature of the thing. On the other hand, we must observe that the defence of a place may be of two kinds, either absolute, if as a general question the point is not to be given up, or relative, if it is only required for a certain time. The latter happens perpetually in the combats of advanced posts and rear guards. That the nature of these different intentions of the combat must have an essential influence on the dispositions which are its preliminaries is a thing clear in itself. We act differently if our object is merely to drive an enemy's post out of its place from what we should if our object was to beat him completely, differently if we mean to defend a place to the last extremity from what we should do if our design is only to detain the enemy for a certain time. In the first case we trouble ourselves little about the line of retreat, in the latter it is the principal point, and such. But these reflections belong properly to tactics, and are only introduced here by way of example for the sake of greater clearness. 
what strategy has to say on the different objects of the combat will appear in the chapters which touch upon these objects here we have only a few general observations to make first that the importance of the object decreases nearly in the order as they stand above therefore that the first of these objects must always predominate in the great battle lastly that the two last in a defensive battle are in reality such as yield no fruit they are that is to say purely negative and can therefore only be serviceable indirectly by facilitating something else which is positive it is therefore a bad sign of the strategic situation if battles of this kind become too frequent chapter six duration of the combat if we consider the combat no longer in itself but in relation to the other forces of war then its duration acquires a special importance the duration is to be regarded to a certain extent as a second subordinate success for the conqueror the combat can never be finished too quickly for the vanquished it can never last too long a speedy victory indicates a higher power of victory a tardy decision is on the side of the defeated some compensation for the loss this is in general true but it acquires a practical importance in its application to those combats the object of which is a relative defence here the whole success often lies in the mere duration this is the reason why we have included it amongst the strategic elements the duration of combat is necessarily bound up with its essential relations these relations are absolute magnitude of force relation of force and of the different arms mutually and nature of the country twenty thousand men do not wear themselves out upon one another as quickly as two thousand we cannot resist an enemy double or three times our strength as long as one of the same strength a cavalry combat is decided sooner than an infantry combat and a combat between infantry only quicker than if there is artillery as well in hills and forests we cannot advance as quickly as on a level country all this is clear enough from this it follows therefore that strength relation of the three arms and position must be considered if the combat is to fulfil an object by its duration but to set up this rule was of less importance to us in our present considerations than to connect with it at once the chief results which experience gives us on the subject even the resistance of an ordinary division of eight thousand to ten thousand men of all arms opposed to an enemy considerably superior in numbers will last several hours if the advantages of country are not too preponderating and if the enemy is only a little or not at all superior in numbers the combat will last half a day a corps of three or four divisions will prolong it to double the time an army of eighty thousand or a hundred thousand to three or four times therefore the masses may be left to themselves for that length of time and no separate combat takes place if within that time other forces can be brought up whose cooperation mingles them at once into one stream with the results of the combat which has taken place these calculations are the result of experience but it is important for us at the same time to characterize more particularly the moment of the decision and consequently the termination end of book four chapter six recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia